Parshas B'Shalach. So Parshas B'Shalach is known as Shabbos Shira. This, this uh, Shabbos, we, we uh, read the Parsha, which we have as Yashir, the song that Klai Yisrael sang after we went through the Yamsuf. And there's so much, uh, so much to talk about. As always, um, Bez Hashem, we will learn together now for about a half hour. We'll see how far along we get into the Parsha. I don't expect us to be able to get too far uh, as far as the Pesukim are concerned, but hopefully as far as learning and messages, there's so much to uh, take in over here. So here we go. So Parsh B'Shalach begins in Parak Yud Gimel, Pasuk Yud Zayin, chapter 13, verse 17. And the Parsha begins with some words that should be surprising to us. And it says, Vayihi B'Shalach Paro, and it, and it was when Paro sent out the nation. Now this should bother us. Did Paro send us out of Mitzrayim? Paro tried keeping us in Mitzrayim. He didn't, right? No, 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 I will not let them go. Ten times, ten plagues, over and over. Paro doesn't want us to go. Until each time, Hashem brings a plague, and he's like twisting Paro's arm, say uncle, say uncle, right? And finally, Paro says, uncle, okay, fine, I'll let them go. And then he changes his mind. So Hashem says, okay, Paro, I'm done with you. I'm giving you the opportunity to let them leave. Your opportunity is gone. I'm now taking my nation out of time. So it's interesting that Parshas B'Shalach begins with the words, Paro sent us out. Something to think about. Okay. When we left Egypt, we did not take the normal path, the, the fastest route, the shortest path, which would have been through the Plishtim. Hashem did not guide us that way. Because even though, if there would have been a fight, obviously, everybody else fights with their horses and chariots, and we fight with Hashem, so there's no, uh, there's no question over who would have been successful. But it would have been a challenge, even though, even people who have tremendous amount of emuna, trust in Hashem, when we hit adversity, there's an element of Call it confusion. There's an element of insecurity, which is it really going to work out for us? And Hashem knew, and this is such an important message, Hashem knew that at that stage of who we were as a people, we were not ready for that challenge. We were not up for that challenge. And therefore, He didn't give us the challenge. Again, the challenge would have been go straight, hit the plishtim, Battle, boom. We weren't ready. And therefore Hashem says, you know what? Adversity right now is nishgit. It's not going to be good for Klal Yisrael. Rather, we're going to go around. Now, you know, there's a well-known, this is not a chiddush from me, we've quoted this many times, there's a well-known essay um, put out there. I'm sure you could Google this, find it online, wherever it is. But there's a, there's a well-known essay of the the parable of the carrot, the egg, and the coffee bean. And the way it goes is like this. There was a young woman who went to her mother and she told her mother that life's difficult. Life's very hard and she, she's not sure how she's going to make it through. And she's tired of all the fighting, the struggling. It's not posh. It's not easy. Okay. So her mother takes her to the kitchen as the parable goes and she fills up three, cup, uh, three pots with water and in the first pot, she places carrots. The second pot, she puts eggs. And in the last pot, she puts the coffee beans. And then the mother turns on the flames. 
and she lets all three sit and boil without saying a word. 20 minutes later, she turns off the burners, fishes out the carrots, puts them in a bowl, pulls out the eggs, puts them in a bowl, ladles out the coffee, and puts it in a bowl. And then she turns to her daughter and she says, what do you see? And her daughter says, ah, what do you mean? Same thing I saw before, right? There's carrots, there's eggs, there's coffee. And the mother brings the daughter closer. She says, touch the carrots. And the daughter touches the carrots. And the mother says, what do you feel? She says, I feel they're soft. She says, take the egg, break it. And the daughter picks up the egg and she tries breaking it, but she can't. Instead, she peels off the shell and she's left with a hard egg. And then the mother says, drink some coffee. She drinks some coffee. So, okay. The mother says, you get the message? Daughter says, no, I don't get the message. She says, okay, let me explain to you. All three things, the carrot, the egg, and the coffee beans face the same adversity, boiling water. Boiling water, as Rav Meishah Sher used to quip to Meishah Sher, uh, who was leader of a good Israel of America, the way he would break the ice when meeting with politicians, he would say that the Jewish people are like tea bags. We only get going when we're in hot water. And that's how he would introduce why he's there, right? So all three items <coughs> hit the same adversity, but they reacted differently. The carrot went in very strong, hard, stubborn, unrelenting, and then it was, it was subjected to the boiling water and it became very weak. It became soft. The egg originally was very fragile, was soft inside. It just had like a thin outer shell protecting it. But after hitting that adversity of the boiling water, what happened to the egg? It became hardened. And the ground coffee beans were unique because nothing actually happened much to the, to the ground beans itself. But you know what they did? They actually changed the water. So the mother turns to her daughter and she says, here's my message to you. <clears throat> These are three different primary reactions that people have when adversity knocks on their door. Some people go in strong and stubborn. They hit adversity and they soften up. For better or for worse. Some people go in very soft to adversity. And then once they hit adversity, God forbid, there's a tzara, there's a death, there's something that happens and we become very hard inside. But the, co- the ground coffee beans were unique in that they took the very adversity that hit them and they turned it into a delicious drink. And these are the three ways that we as individuals can react to this adversity. And sometimes, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, I shouldn't say sometimes, always in our lives, there are going to be times where HaKadosh Baruch Hu puts us up to the, the various adversities. And it's really up to us. That's what the, the message of this essay, it's not a Jewish essay, you can find this. It's the, the message of this essay is when Hashem puts us up to the adversity that exists, He's really challenging us to see what's going to happen. Are we going to take our circumstances and improve it? Right? Sometimes I'll, I'll talk to myself or I'll talk to uh, my own students and they're, they're complaining about this and that. I'm like, if you don't like what's going on in school, you don't like your teachers, you decide to be the best teacher there ever is. 
That's what you should decide to do. Instead of sitting there quetching and being the victim, you become the best possible. You're going to change everything. You'll take your very circumstances and, and strengthen everything. Every time HaKadosh Baruch Hu puts us up to adversity, there is this opportunity for the proper way to react. Our Parsha is letting us know if we didn't have the opportunity to get stronger, Hashem would not even give it to us. Says the first verse. Hashem did not lead us the way of the Plishtim. He didn't even let us go that way. Because if we hit that adversity, He knew we're going to become this hardened egg and we can't handle it. So He says, you know what? We're going to take a different route. Kikarev who says Rashi, just reading along in the verses, this is amazing. Kikarev who means it was too easy to go back. If we would have hit adversity so soon after leaving Egypt, we would have gone right, we would have gone right back to Mitzrayim. Once we hit the adversity after, cross, after crossing the Yamsuf, right? We crossed the Yamsuf and now, boom, adversity. Ah, we're going back. One second. We were in Egypt for hundreds of years subjugated, okay? How in the world is it possible? And we're going to find this in our parsha and later. The Jewish nation, things got tough in the Midbar, in the desert, and we're like, you know what? Let's go back. Things were easier for us in Egypt. Are you kidding me? No way. How, how, is it, how would any sane person contemplate going back, which we, we do over and over through our time, uh, through our time in, the, in the Midbar? So I saw a beautiful uh, clarification on this. And really that's all it is. It's just a clarification. And that is, we have to recognize the storyline. What happened is, we left Egypt. The, Egyptian, the last, the last um, 6 to 12 months in Mitzrayim, we were not working anymore. During the plagues, according to Chazal, according to the sages, we were done with working. Not only that, during the plague of darkness, we received a tremendous amount of wealth. And then what happens? We leave Egypt. Seven days later, we get to the Yamsuf, which is the, the highlight of our Parsha this week. We get to the, the, story, of the, cross, <coughs> the story of the crossing of the Yamsuf. And what happens after we cross? All the Egyptians, the soldiers, everybody, noblemen, they're gone. They're no longer around. All of the people who, would, who used to pick on us, besides for the ones who were killed in Egypt, the ones that left and chased after us, they're gone now too. And therefore, the Jewish people, if you just get the story, we ended off our time in Egypt on a high. And now the same people who subjugated us are no longer in existence. Our very masters were no longer around. And therefore... And therefore, we would have thought, you know something? We had homes. We had everything that got in our way in Egypt is no longer around. Let's go back. What's stopping us? And therefore, because it really was an easy decision to go back. This is enhancing the point of the Pasuk. Because it really was a logical decision to go back. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says... I'm not leading you the way of the plishtim. I can't lead you there. Because it really would turn into an easy decision to go back 
which ultimately would be a big mistake. So just to picture the storyline of what's happening, you know, there, there, imagine if we're, if we're subjugated to something, harassed, abused, and that's all gone now. And all, and, and all that exists is opportunity as opposed to Eretz Yisrael, which many people had not experienced. None of us had experienced it, but we'd experienced it. It would be a logical thing. Go with what you know. And therefore, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, again, initially, no tests, no trials, because it would have been uh, too difficult to withstand. Let's keep reading the verse, because Hashem says, Perhaps the people will change their mind when they hit battle, and they will decide to go back to Mitzrayim. So rather, how does Hashem take us? Hashem took the people in a roundabout way towards the Yamsuf, towards the Red Sea. The Chamushim, and there were Chamushim. Okay, now I'm not translating Chamushim yet on purpose. This is a fascinating word. But there were Chamushim, Alu B'nei Yisrael, that the, the Jewish nation went up, May Eretz Mitzrayim, from the land of Mitzrayim. Okay, so what do we see in the first verse explains to us why we went the roundabout way to the Yamsuf, to the Red Sea. And then in the second verse, the Torah is letting us know that as we went to the Red Sea, we went in a path of Chamushim. Okay, now what does this mean? What does this mean we went the Chamushim? So this is a very unique root word. It's a very unique root word. And here, here's, how, here's how it goes. There's five fingers on a standard hand. Okay? Hebrew five is chamesh. Therefore, what is a um, a built-in weapon? A built-in weapon, you ever, you know, somebody's people, people have a weapon, they're called armed. Why are they called armed? Because our arms and our hands really are the built-in weapons that can protect us. It's interesting. So the word chamushim doesn't only mean five, it also hints to weapons, to arms, power. So chamushim here can mean um, five, it can mean power, and it can also mean, the word chamushim, can also hint to us the word a fifth. It all has the same root. So now listen to this. What does what does the word chamusha mean? And it's this. Uh, it also mean what? Huh? A fifth. A fifth. Twenty okay. percent of something. Okay. Okay. Now, here's what's fascinating. This word chamushim is like the highlight of this pasuk, and it's it's it's. It's like, what do I do with this word? How do I handle it? So Rashi gives two translations, two possible ways to translate Hamushim. Interestingly, his second way is a lot more famous than the first way. But let's say Rashi's first shot. The first explanation Rashi gives the Hamushim is, we left armed with weapons. That's what Hamushim hints to. The Jewish nation left Egypt protected with physical weapons. That's the first pshat in Rashi. Okay. Then Rashi says, Dover Acher. Another possible way to translate this word, Vechamushim, is that one fifth 
20% of the men in Egypt between age of 20 and 60 had the merit to leave Egypt, four-fifths of them died. Four-fifths of the Jewish nation did not make it out of Egypt. That's what it means, v'chamushim alu b'nei Yisrael. One-fifth went out. And this is more, this is a lot more, uh, a more, we'll call it famous, a lot more quoted of a translation in Rashi that four-fifths of the people who did not, who did not believe, they did not have the proper emuna <coughs> that HaKadosh Baruch Hu would ultimately <coughs> take us out of Egypt because they didn't believe, they didn't have, <coughs> excuse me, they didn't have the schus, the merit to actually leave Egypt. Okay, so Rashi gives us two pshatim. There's a third reason given. And this reason given is by the Talmud Yerushalmi. All right? The, the, I'm sorry, the Targum Yerushalmi. The Yerushalmi translation of the Psukim. Says the Targum Yerushalmi. You know what it means that one-fifth left? It means that each family, Hamushim, means each family had five children. That's what Hamushim means. Every family that left Egypt had five children. That's what Targum Yerushalmi says. So we have three explanations of what this word chamushim, they left Egypt chamushim. Chamushim either means five children each. Chamushim can mean armed. And chamushim can mean one-fifth. Now I want to share a beautiful explanation from Rabbi Yosef Misalant. Rabbi Yosef Misalant has a sefer, a, a book published called the Be'er Yosef. And listen to what he says. He says that there's no argument here over what happened. And there's no argument over what v'chamushim means. All three translations are telling the same story. And listen to what he says. <clears throat> says Rabbi Yosef Misalant. Four-fifths of dads passed away in Egypt. That means 80% of the Jewish children were orphans. They may have had a mother, but they didn't have a father. So let's start to picture the scene. According to the explanation that 80% of men between the age of 20 and 60 passed away, imagine the families Okay, so you have 80% of the children are orphans. How did we leave Egypt? Says Rebbe Yosef Misalant, here's the picture. When Rashi says we left armed, it doesn't mean with weapons. The way the Jewish nation arms themselves is with maisim tovim, with good deeds. That's how we stay protected. We know that the way for the Jewish nation to be taken care of is when we take care of others. That's how we weaponize ourselves. That's how we arm ourselves with good deeds. And therefore, says Rabbi Yosef Misalant, 80% of the children were orphans because four-fifths died. So says Rashi, we left Egypt armed with good deeds for our protection. That's what it means, Hamushim. Because there was only one-fifth that left, like the Targum Yerushalmi, therefore we left with the arms. All three are now the same narrative. It's all the same story. What does it mean the Jewish nation left the Chamushim? Because only one-fifth left, 
we were armed with good deeds. But what does it mean that every family had five children? First of all, that's impossible. Because the Torah told us that the women were giving birth to six at a time. And if you do the math, by the way, don't have time for it right now. If you do the math, the way it's written in Bamidbar, every, and you go through how many people existed in Klal Yisrael, each family averaged 59 children. You could figure this out from the verses in Sefer Bamidbar. Each family averaged 59 children. There's no way each family left with five. Okay? So what does it mean that each family had five children? Says the Bar Yosef, each family left with five families worth of children. Every one set of parents didn't only have their own family to take care of. They also had four other families to take care of. And that's the good deeds that we were armed with because only one-fifth left Mitzrayim. And this is it. Now it, it just paints a whole picture. What was taking place in the desert? Picture the Midbar where you have millions and millions of people together. 600,000 plus men between the end 20 and 60, at least 3 million plus. And each family, each, each set of adults is walking around taking responsibility for a couple hundred kids, <laughs> right? They're taking responsibility. And, and this is what was necessary in order to establish ourselves as a people. It was necessary. It couldn't just be that in the desert, each family stood by themselves. No, we wouldn't have been become Klal Yisrael. We wouldn't have had the merit to enter Eretz Yisrael in such a fashion. By definition, the way that we were created as a people is we needed to be there taking care of the widow and the orphan. We needed to be there take that as a people, as a nation, everybody was taken care of, everybody was handled. I want to throw in, uh, a completely separate point that comes up later on in the Parsha. <clears throat> but I think it's a, it's a beautiful thought. And I don't want to miss out on this if we get a little too uh, far along in the Parsha. And I forget on this. I, to me, it was such a powerful uh, point that was actually mentioned to me a little bit after uh, my mother, Zechariah Levracha, passed away. So it's very interesting to note. And this is how it connects over here because... You know, everybody, we know that as a nation, we all walked out um, together as a people, but each tribe had its own flag, right? Each, uh, each tribe had its own flag, and there was a certain way for the encampment to work around the Mishkan. The, the Mishkan was in the center with the Aron, and the Aron, I'm sorry, was, well, the Mishkan was built later, but the, the Aaron was in the center, and there was a whole pattern to the way the Jewish nation uh, encamped and the way that we traveled. Now, it's interesting to note, the pinnacle of the trauma of Yitzias Mitzrayim was our parsha, the splitting of the sea. We left Egypt, and then we get to Kriyas Yamsuf. Okay, we get to the splitting of the sea. What happens when the sea splits? Interestingly, each tribe crossed individually. Meaning, the, the verse hints to us, we'll learn it later on, that there were walls separating each tribe. They were able to see each other, but there were 
individualized, we, we, we crossed with our own families. The question is why? If throughout the rest of the 40 years in the Midbar, you come to Harsina, you have everything, we're all together, yeah, everybody's encamped, like with their families, under their flag, but there's no like, there's no, there's no walls dividing us. Why is it that at Kriyas Yamsuf, we needed walls to divide us? Why is that necessary? Ever thought about it? Like, who cares? Let, let, us, let us cross the same way. Let us all, all go together. So somebody shared with me, and I don't know who this is from, but it was very impactful to me, and I'll tell you why. This was shared with me again after we were sitting shipping for my mother. Now, as many of you know, I come from a family of, I'm the youngest of 13. 13 children. And um, we, uh, Baruch Hashem, we all get along. We have very different personalities. Very different personalities. After we got it from Shiva, one of my older sisters quipped that the greatest miracle was that there was no punching uh, after all of us had to stay in the house together for a week. Like, that, uh, miraculous. And, and here's something that, I, that, that was noticed. And we actually spoke about as siblings afterwards. When people go through a loss, any sort of trauma, it's handled differently. Everybody handles it differently. I had one sister for seven days, couldn't stop talking. Couldn't stop talking. I had another sister who couldn't say a word. I'm busy telling jokes. And I have a brother who's as serious as, as can be. Everybody's like dealing with the situation. Some people are, you know, some of us are like trying to ignore the pain a little bit. Others are trying to delve into it. And, it, and the, everyone's, you know, probably looking at the other one thinking like, what's your problem? Like, this is not a time for jokes. Or this is not a time to like, uh, this is a time for quiet. Or this is a time to tell stories. Everybody thinks that the way that they're handling the trauma is appropriate. And we can't really figure out how other people are doing it. Listen to this. Our Parsha teaches us. By Hashem putting up walls between the tribes. That this is just the way it is. When you go through a trauma. Any trauma in life. This was a unique trauma. As we became a people. But each Shevet needed to be. The reason why there were walls is because each Shevet needed to be comfortable. Experiencing this situation their way. And it's nobody else's business. Shevet Reuven has its personality. And therefore, by the, every, the rest of the time, you could be together with, with Shimon Levi Yehuda. But during the Yamsuf, when you're going through this situation, Reuven had to be left alone to experience it in a way that was MS to him, to them. And Yehuda the same way, with their kochos, with their strengths, with their personality, Shevet Yehuda had to have it. And this applies, right? trauma is not, 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 a, not, not always a detriment. Trauma is a shocking situation. That's what it's, it's, a, it's a shock, right? It's something that's, that's totally unexpected and it comes from various ways. The Yamsuf had to be experienced individually in order for it to even be experienced because the worst thing that can happen is that there wouldn't be walls Everybody would, would be together and too uncomfortable to experience it comfortably. 
and that would have been to the detriment. Yes, go ahead. So each shevet is looked at. Each shevet is looked at as a particular unit, and we as Klal Yisrael need to have each of these twelve units in order to have perfection. You can't. You can't have a Klal Yisrael with eleven tribes. It's not going to work. But it's, it's 12 units that come together under the banner of B'nai Yisrael, right? Their father was Yaakov, was Yisrael, which is why we're all called B'nai Yisrael. But in order for B'nai Yisrael to function, there has to be, um, and, and here, here's a, an, I'm not usually so good with the English language, but these are words that I once heard and I think fits very well into this. In order for Klai Yisrael to be Klai Yisrael, we need to have unity without uniformity. Because once we have uniformity, then we're not a robust people. We're all just penguins doing the same thing. The goal to be, in order to exist as a nation, is that there's not uniformity. Is that there are different paths. That, you know, not every path is legitimate in Avodah Sashem, but... If it follows Mesorah, it follows the tradition of the sages, we need all these different traditions. And we know this for ourselves, we know this, right? Imagine a Klal Yisrael where there's, there's only Ashkenazic Jews. Can you imagine? You know, what, you know what a loss that would be? As great as Baruch Hashem, as much as yeah. Imagine there's only Ashkenazic Jews. You don't have a... What, what type of Klal Yisrael is that? Right? You don't have the Hasidim, you don't have the Sfardim, you don't have that. What, what is that, right? No, we need, we, we need all these different Shvatim uh, for, in, in order to be able to exist and, um, and have this robustness as a people. Okay, back to the Psukim. We only have another minute or two. Um, let's see. Vayikach Maisha. Okay, Pasuk Yutes. And Moshe took as Atmos Yosef Imo, Yosef's bones with him. Why? Because Yosef had the Bnei Yisrael swear. Lamar saying, Hashem will surely remember you. You're going to leave Mitzrayim. And therefore, I'm making you promise that you will take my bones with you. Okay. So, what do you see from here? What do you see from the Pasuk? Rashi points out, that, that um, as, as we're leaving Mitzrayim, who's taking the bones of Yosef? Moshe. Okay, so Klai Yisrael is getting ready to leave Egypt. Moshe Rabbeinu, they're gathering all their suitcases. And Moshe Rabbeinu is gathering the bones of Yosef. Okay, now the Gemara in Tractate Sota, Daf Yud Gimel 13a. The Gemara in Sota says, come and see how precious mitzvos are to Moshe Rabbeinu. While everybody else is busy going and collecting the spoils, Moshe is involved in mitzvos, says the Gemara, as it says in the Pasuk, Chacham Lev, a wise-hearted person, Yikach mitzvos, grabs many mitzvos. So you should learn a message from Moshe. While everybody else is gathering up their spoils, yeah, getting all the, the wealth from Egypt. Maishu takes the bones of Yosef. Very nice. Asks the Imre Emes of Ger. The Ger Rebbe. The Imre Emes. 
He says, what are you talking about? Listen to this. He, he asks a very straightforward question, which should be bothering us. He says, first of all, the Gemara says, see how beloved mitzvos are to Moshe. Mitzvos is plural, many mitzvos. He says, you don't see that many mitzvos are beloved to Moshe. One mitzvah. Yosef asked them to take his bones. Moshe did a mitzvah. Maybe he likes this mitzvah. Who says he likes many mitzvos? Maybe he wanted this mitzvah. That's question number one. Okay? Question number two is, the gathering of the spoils is also a mitzvah. Hashem told us, I promised Avram Avinu, you're going to leave in great wealth. Do me a favor. Go take the money. So why is Moshe being uh, commended for doing a mitzvah, for taking the bones of Yosef? B'nai Yisrael is also doing mitzvahs. They're listening to Hashem's request. Moshe is listening to Yosef's request. There's not Hashem's request. Maybe their mitzvah is even greater. Okay? Two very valid questions on this puzzle. So, to answer the first question is of the Imre Emes. Why does it say Moshe took many mitzvahs? He says a beautiful thing. You know, later on, we find that when it came time for the bringing of the Pesach sacrifice, so the Torah tells us, there was a group of men that were impure and they weren't able, able to bring the carbon Pesach. So they wanted the Pesach Sheni. That's really how we got the mitzvah Pesach Sheni. Um, so you see from this verse, there was a whole group of people that were involved in bringing the bones of Yosef. Says the Imre Emes like this. He says, what happened is, Moshe started the mitzvah and other people saw Moshe's involvement in the mitzvah, so they also got involved in the mitzvah. And what happened once they started helping out with the carrying of Yosef's bones? They were impure. And because they were impure, they went to Moshe. And Moshe said, they said, oh, we want a Pesach. So Moshe goes to Hashem. He says, Hashem, what do we do? We all want to bring a Pesach sacrifice and we can't. So what does Hashem say? Pesach Sheni. So what happened? Moshe started doing one mitzvah and eventually... It led to another mitzvah and a whole group of people doing mitzvahs. And that says the Imre Yemes is the message of the Pasuk. When it says Moshe took the bones of Yosef, you see how Chacham Lev Yikach mitzvahs. It's letting us know that a wise person realizes if you have a mitzvah to do, just do it. Even if it's on your own, there's nobody else interested, start. Because once you get that going, once you get something good going, other people will see it's good. They'll want to be part of it. They'll join in and it'll turn into plural mitzvos. You'll have many people involved in it. And you may even end up with opportunities for further mitzvos. Like Pesach Sheni, which really, which, uh, which ended up. That is uh, the answer to question number one. The second question that we asked was, weren't all the spoils a mitzvah? And we'll end with this. We have to hold it here for today. Weren't all the spoils uh, a mitzvah? Why are we only, <coughs> why are we only giving the the uh, credit to Moshe for taking the mitzvah. And the answer given by the Bali Musr, our Musr leaders, is very profound and very important, which is, if you think about it, there was two mitzvahs in front of us. The mitzvah of Yosef's bones and the mitzvah of the spoils. And it takes a wise person to know which mitzvah to get involved in. Very often, it's the less popular one that other people aren't doing, that's a lot harder to do, but speaks a lot more to the person's commitment, to the person's wisdom, when we know which one to choose. 
So granted, say the Bali Busser, granted, the rest of B'nai Yisrael were also doing mitzvahs. But there's mitzvahs and there's mitzvahs. There's mitzvahs that are easy to come by and easy to do. I'm going to become wealthy. Hashem asked me, go get spoils from the Egyptians. Yeah, I could do one of those. That's a, that's a mitzvah that's not too hard, right? But then there was another opportunity for a mitzvah. To do a favor for Yosef at Tzaddik. Not as, you know, not as fancy, not as, you know. A chacham lev, a wise person knows which mitzvah to choose when you have mitzvahs. And that's the credit that we're giving Moshe Rabbeinu. Not that he did mitzvahs and nobody else did, but he was wise enough to know when you have different mitzvahs in front of you, which mitzvah to put on your plate first. Okay, we'll hold it here for today. And um, welcome to take any questions.